Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is hip-hop producer Marco Polo. Marco is a Canadian native whose love for hip-hop brought him to New York in the early 2000s. He's best known for his albums like Port Authority, Afro Polo, and A Brooklyn Story, his latest release with rap legend Master Ace. Marco's worked with all-time greats like Sean Price, Pharaoh Monch, Rock Kim, and the list goes on. Marco was kind enough to talk with me before leaving on his Europe winter tour about his journey from humble beginnings to being on tour with Master Ace. We discussed making beats and the art of sampling, his favorite Italian dishes and travel destinations, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Marco, and I hope you do as well. And as always, if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe and leaving a review. Enjoy the episode. All right, listen, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast, seeing as how your Europe winter tour with Master Ace starts in just a few days in Germany. So I thought we could kind of start there, and you just walk me through a day in the life of a hip-hop producer on tour from the moment you wake up to the moment you start performing. Tour life, it's very exciting. Uh, It's not as glamorous as people probably think. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people just think it's a lot of partying and fun, but it's actually 90% work because of the rigorous schedule. I mean, if you look at our tour schedule, it's sometimes we have 10 to 12 shows in a row in different countries. So there's a lot of driving, a lot of traveling. And really, I like to call it the chasing sleep tour because you never quite get what you need. But once you get on stage, you kind of get that energy and adrenaline and it, and it pushes you to the next day. And you know, it's amazing. So it's that's not a complaint. It's more of a clarification as, you know, we wake up and we travel to the next city. And sometimes I have time to go look for records and be leisurely and enjoy the the places. And sometimes it's literally straight to sound check, try and get some food and on stage. I imagine just coming down from the nerves themselves from performing probably keeps you up at night. Yeah, it's great, man. I mean, I have the best job in the world. Like, it's amazing. Like, I make music and then we we go around the world and perform it and thankfully people know some of the songs and you know it makes it makes all this work by myself being a nerd you know in a cave of music uh worth it so it's uh, it's a blessing right it sounds like a dream come true so you wake up you said you get on stage do some sound checks try to get a bite to eat i mean what is that you some people bringing you food or what eating is definitely a priority to, to have energy so we always try and have a good sit down meal uh, the night of the show. Uh, usually the promoters are, you know, help organize us to find something. Uh, it's actually a little tricky because there's six of us on the tour and everyone has different uh, food restrictions. Like Ace is almost full uh, vegan now and, you know, strict doesn't eat meat and then I eat everything. So, um, you know, we try our best to make it work and, uh, you know, we usually sit down. That's And that's an important part of the tour is eating together and just kind of, you know, chopping it up and, and making sure we have enough energy to kill it, especially with Ace, man. He's amazing. At, I think he's 53 years old now. Uh, he has more energy than me, and I just turned 40. So um, he's an inspiration always to watch on tour. That's awesome. And yeah, I saw Mass Ace perform live here in Columbus, Ohio once, and it was one of the best performances I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Let's go from there, man. So you're getting ready to perform. People start piling in. I mean, how are you feeling? Does that just breed anxiety? Uh, man, I've been doing this for almost 20 years and I still, before every show, get like mild jitters, but it's all gone. As soon as I grab that mic and start, you know, doing the intro for the show and we and I hit play on that first beat, then it's all good times from there. 
Awesome. So are you actually scratching and, and doing overdubs for, for whoever's performing? To, to clarify, a lot of people think I'm like a DJ on two turntables, and that's not the case. I, I was never a DJ. Um, I run the whole show from my MPC MIDI controller using Serato. So I'm essentially triggering all the songs live, but with the pads instead of turntables. So it's the same idea, but I definitely don't have the skills on the cutting and scratching. So that's like a real life version of what would be happening in the studio. <laughs> essentially, essentially, yeah. Uh, me and Ace got a good thing going on. And, uh, you know, I used to be terrified performing with Ace because he, his show is, is uh, impeccable. And, you know, one fuck up and he gives you what we like to call the death stare real quick. Like, uh-uh. So I've, I've learned to be on point and he's taught me a lot about performing and timing. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. Can you give me an example of one of those fuck ups? Well, it's just if I bring a song in a little late or at the wrong time or anything, you know, half the time the, the audience will never notice. One thing he definitely taught me or I've learned is that uh, the crowd only know there's a mistake if you acknowledge it and then, you know, you make them aware of it. But half the time they don't know. It's just something between me and Ace like to look at me and be like, what was that? But thankfully, those moments are very rare these days. And, uh, you know, we have a really, really tight show. And uh, I think that's why... I don't think I know that's why he continues and we continue to tour every year. It sounds like you guys got a great thing going, man. You grew up in Richmond Hill, Ontario, just outside of Toronto. What does the hip hop scene look like in Canada, man? Hip hop history in Canada is very interesting. Uh, you know, we had, we have amazing artists. We have amazing producers. We have amazing DJs, uh, you know, if you go all the way back to uh, the Toronto scene, which is where I'm from, you have pioneers like Maestro Fresh West and Mishimi. And then, uh, you know, it transitions into a lot of other people's like Socrates and Cardinal Fischel and Chocolaire. And, you know, we had a really dope underground scene. Um, we never quite had that huge international like hip hop artist. You know, we had guys that got close. So, that's kind of what it motivated me to move to New York is that I didn't want to be bound down to the super underground scene. And I wanted to start working with some of my rappers. And then, you know, fast forward, you enter into the Drake era where Toronto is literally, you know, a place everyone's looking for new, for new artists now. So uh, that's the very condensed short version of, of the hip hop history in Canada. It's not close, but essentially that's what happened. It was like super underground. And then we had these huge, uh, commercial urban acts like Drake and Weekend. And, and, uh, so you worked for a Heartless Collections agency and eventually decided to take your MPC and your new ports to NYC in 2001. Tell me more about that bold move. Well, to clarify, I took my MPC. New ports I didn't take because new ports are an American-only cigarette. So uh, the new ports got introduced to me when I, when I moved to New York, which has just been terrible. I need to stop smoking those. But yeah, uh, I moved to New York to intern at a studio and work for free and get my feet, you know, get my foot in the door at a studio and slowly start giving my beats to people. So, yeah, I was working at a studio called The Cutting Room, doing a lot of grunt work, making coffee, cleaning bathrooms, running errands. And then, you know, over time, I got hired to assistant to be an assistant engineer. And, you know, I never really wanted to engineer, record or mix for artists. I just wanted to be in a place where I could give dope MCs my beats and that's essentially what I kind of polyed over time is giving people my beats and then I left the studio and then started working with a bunch of uh, of legends in New York 
And I've read you were once fired for stealing hip hop albums. How do you get caught and what albums were worth stealing? Oh, not even once. That happened multiple times. Uh, I lost, I'm going to go on a limb and say I lost two jobs uh, finagling hip hop CDs. <laughs> and it wasn't like one album. I was like stealing a lot of shit. It was, it was me being a young teenager so in love with discovering hip hop music that I put myself in harm's way uh, lost two jobs actually as a young we call young offender in Canada because if you're under a certain age you're protected by the laws so you know I was stealing like five thousand dollars worth of product and, and going to court uh, and getting a little slap on the wrist like don't do that again do community service so I lost a couple of jobs but that was the cross point where I was like all right stop fucking around go to school for music you love it and stop doing this bullshit like turn turn this into something uh respectable <laughs> and that's what I get the trouble out of the way before you can get those serious punishments. You've worked with legends like Rakim, two of my all-time favorites, Pharaoh Monch and the late Sean Price. Any good stories with Sean Price you'd like to share? Oh my God, there's so many stories. My favorite story of with Sean is one time he came through to record vocals. I forget what song, but he showed up at my apartment holding a bag of fish. <laughs> and he was like, yo, this is my dinner. Can you put it in the freezer until we're done the session? I was like, I got you, bro. <laughs> I got you. So he came to the studio with his bag of fish, which was for dinner, threw it in the freezer. Uh, the freezer. We knocked out the vocals and he was on his way. But he's he was a very charismatic person. He always used to make fun of me, like literally on a song with Rusty Jooks on our album. He clowns me at the end of the song, but I never took it personally because I know that it was, you know, it was a form of flattery. Like we had a friendship and he just used to bust my chops. You know what I'm saying? And um, I will always treasure those moments and all the songs that I've done with him. And it was just a blessing to know that, to know that man. So. Yeah, he was very cool. Like, he definitely had an aura about him that was intimidating and he didn't settle, you know, he didn't tolerate any bullshit. But all that aside, if he fucked with you, he, you know, he was a good friend. And, and, you know, he always had my back. Whenever I needed him for something, he was always, he always, you know, came through. So rest in peace, Sean Price. Rest in peace. So I'm curious, if it's not the Explorer Marco Polo that, that you went with, was it like the game? I imagine like it's sort of like the game where your beats are Marco and you're throwing it out there listening for the right rapper to yell Polo for the perfect collaboration. Yeah, I wanted to, I want to tell you that those two ideas inspired my name, but they didn't. Uh, I moved to New York and I didn't have really an artist name. I had a really shitty one that to this day, I've never told anyone, only Shiloh knows it and I'll never say it. But my producer friend, Ayatollah, a legendary Ayatollah who produced Miss Fat Booty for most Def, uh, I was hanging out with him a lot when I moved to New York and he started calling me Marco Polo and he is responsible for that name and I just ran with it. Mostly because I like the idea of over time people just calling me my real name and not something crazy where you know, 20 years later, I'm regretting it, you know? So the beautiful thing about my name is it's actually my government name. It's Marco. Not like fucking Johnny Street Beats where I'm like, oh, fuck, why did I pick that? You know, it's people call me Marco. I'm Marco Polo. It's my name. It's just, it worked out great. Not to be confused with Marco Polo from I and I, shouts to Pete Rock, uh, but that is a different Marco Polo. I'm not in I and I. And lately, it's been funny. I've been doing some traveling. And a lot of people think I am Marco Polo from the group I and I, which I am not. Shouts to them, though. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. And it works out perfect now that you're hooking up with Master Ace. The Master Polo just goes well. Absolutely. 
So is part of your job finding the right artist to work with so there is no separateness in the final project? My whole career leading to kind of teaming up with Ace as, as kind of like a group was, yeah, it was me making producer albums and basically finding MCs that I thought were super dope, regardless if they were popular or not, and assembling producer projects like Port Authority 1, Port Authority 2, New Port Authority. Um, that's always been my thing. Uh, but now it's kind of transitioned into less of me seeking out artists and really focusing on what me and Ace have going on and, and working on a follow-up to uh, a Brooklyn story, which is what I'm doing right now. Brooklyn Story album is out. How'd you hook up with him and did the fans bring you two together? The first time me and Ace worked was for my Port Authority album in that era. So I guess we met around 2004, 2005. I gave him beats and he picked a beat for his album, A Long Hot Summer. And uh, he had no budget left to pay me. So I was just so excited that he liked my beats. I didn't care about no money. I was like, hey, bro, take the beat and just do a song for me, which ended up being a song called Nostalgia, which to this day is my most known song in the underground. You know, the video's almost at 8 million views. And that song kind of sparked something in the in the underground where people are like we like this we like this collaboration and you and ace and then i started touring with them and you know slowly started working on new music and then he eventually uh, brought up the idea of us doing an album uh and forward to 2018 we released our first uh, collaborative album together what song is your favorite to perform live with him I definitely love performing Brooklyn. Uh, that always goes off real well. Uh, just because it's, it's like so mellow, but then the drums come in and it's super hard. So, and it seems to have resonated with a lot of people. And it just, I just love that song. It just embodies everything about my journey and, and you know, the borough that I've lived in for 20 years since moving from Canada. So I'm going to go with Brooklyn. I like that. Marco Polo's beats are mellow, but they hit so hard. <laughs> Well, for that particular one, yes. If you look at my catalog before Brooklyn Story, I was definitely like double barrel execution. I was, it was definitely more hardcore shit, uh, a little bit more raw. But for Ace, uh, I had to switch it up a bit. And he still likes, of course, raw beats, but uh, he's a very conceptual writer and very theme oriented. And he likes to talk about specific things. It's not a lot of straight spit joints. We have those on the album, but they're more of a minority in the scheme of an album that we would make together. Mm -hmm. Meeting your musical heroes has had to have let you down a few times, I imagine, because a lot of people just suck. But who did you meet that had the opposite effect where they exceeded your expectations? You know, it's funny because I did this Vice uh, interview and, uh, you know, I ended off the interview talking about how don't meet your heroes, they'll let you down. And I really wish that I had side noted it at the end with, but I've also met many that have exceeded my expectations and I'm glad I can talk about it now because that is the case from large professor being, uh, you know, turning into an acquaintance and now with confidence, I can call him a friend. That's been an incredible experience working with him, having him come through my studio and record music and, uh, you know, and then probably the most notable is becoming friends with my number one influence of all time on the beats, DJ premier, uh, you know, like I've toured with him, you know, I can call him and we talk on the phone. I go to the studio and get to hear, you know, exclusive unreleased songs. And it's, I, I've known him for over shit, 10 years. And every time he calls me or I'm there, I'm still a fan and in awe of the fact that, you know, we're friends and it's just such a, a blessing. So I've met many people, Master Ace included, like a lot of the people I used to grow up 
that I grew up listening to are incredible in real life. You know what I'm saying? So that's surreal. I don't want to compare you and those other producers, but there's some sort of commonality when I'm listening to you or Premier or Dilla or all these guys that I just really like something about your drums. Is there a commonality that you all share when choosing drums? If you get any sort of influence that or, you know, reminder of those type of producers when you hear my stuff, I take it as a huge compliment because those those two specifically, Dilla and Prem, are my favorites. Uh, and yeah, for me, the style of hip hop production I like is drum driven. It always has been. No matter what phases hip hop goes through, uh, you know, we see a lot of drumless stuff happening in the underground now and that's all cool. But yeah, I like shit that knocks. I love programming drums and, and making things funky. And it's just about the knock. And it's especially important when you're touring. A lot of artists forget this is that um, when you're on a stage, you know, the, the power of the music, it, it brings the energy to the show. So having up-tempo songs with hard drums and dope bass lines is so important, especially when you're, you know, you're doing concerts, you know, a hundred times a year. So yeah, that's why I'm always studying drums and making sure my drums are the best they can be. Right. I would imagine choosing drums is everything. How do you keep it pure sounding and not too synthetic or fruity loops? I try not to overthink stuff. It's just more of a feeling like, um, it all depends on my vibe, you know, um, it starts with vinyl. It starts with the records. It starts with digging, you know, like looking for records and finding unique drums and breaks and being aware of breaks that have been used so many times, you know, there's certain drum breaks where I'm like, you got to retire that. Or if you do use something, use it in a creative way. Just, you know, hip hop has been, it's like a recycled type of music in the sense of the production where, you know, you have a whole new generation of producers discovering all the samples that the previous generation used for beats and now they're using it. So it's like, it's kind of tricky for me. It's like, really going to school like, okay, I know these drums have been used a thousand times. How can I use them in a different way where people are like, oh shit, I know that, but it's different. That goes for, that goes for everything though these days, doesn't it? I mean, that goes for lyrics, whatever you're producing. It's like, there's nothing new under the sun, but whatever spin you put on it is going to be unique to you. Yeah, it, absolutely. And I got to shout out my brother Shiloh, who's in my crew, the drum majors and, you know, uh, the guy who taught me how to make beats, but you know, it's like lately, I'll even just be real. Like I've been having, I've been in a bit of a beat rut. Um, and it's, you know, and, and he's, he's just, he was telling the days like you're overthinking, you're putting yourself in a box. And it's just like, um, he's always pushing me to like, to bring out this, this next level, uh, you know, thing where it's like, you know, you've reached a level with your production. There's no going back. Now you've set a bar for yourself. And it's like a blessing and a curse because, uh, you know, Sometimes I'm, you know, I'm pushing myself so hard to like do something unique and different because I want to be remembered one day like some of these legends. And um, so it's work, man. It's a lot of work to try and get a sound. It's trying, it's very difficult to make something that's been done a million times new again is what I'm saying. That's my goal. It's like, how do I do something that everyone's done a thousand times and still make it fresh and new and not like, oh, I heard that before. So that's the goal. Yeah, I think you're achieving that goal. Could you walk me through your process with just a single drum from choosing it to keeping it for storage for future use? Do you record real drum sounds or? The only time I've worked with an actual drummer is J-Zone, which was an amazing experience. Shout out to J-Zone. I hired him to play a bunch of original breakbeats for me. Uh, and I have a stash of those. Um, 
Those aren't really individual drum sounds though. They're more like like breaks that I would chop and loop. Besides that, uh, I really just look for interesting breaks and kicks and snares. And uh, you know, sometimes over time, some of them will become drums I go back to. It's interesting because like certain breaks, it's like they're so obvious. You can once I use them, I kind of like retire them. And then there's other sounds that have a knock. But they're a little less more generic so I can use them again. Like you'll notice it on the Ace album, there's some songs where I have some of the same kicks, kicks and snares, but I'm actually very aware of that to not, you know, kind of use the same drums over and over again. I'm always trying to, to change it up. Right, that sounds like it's, it, it might be the number one challenge to get over. It's like writers have writer's block and, and beat makers have that, not only getting in front of that NPC and starting to do something or make something is trying not to sound like other people. I feel like I would try to not listen to too many other producers because my subconscious might try to adopt that style as my oh, own. Oh, absolutely. That's why Dill is the greatest. That's why I can't listen to him sometimes because he's so fucking influential to me that I find myself when I listen to too much Dilla, like not that I could ever make my shit sound like Dilla, but he's just so infectious with his bounce, his groove. I'm like, man, like I want my shit to move and groove like that, you know? And he was just a, a special a special human like an alien and with the newer technologies or is there equipment out now that you wish you would have had access to when you first started not really man i really feel like it's man over machine these days like uh, that's a whole other separate discussion where people are like you know is it the machine is it the man but i really feel like it's the person behind the machine whether you're using an mpc an sb12 uh you know machine or you're making beats in the computer it don't matter the funk comes from the person for sampling, is this going away due to a lack of effort or is it just too expensive to sample now? It's a tough one, you know, sampling is hip hop. Like for me, it's the basis of literally how it all started from, from DJs finding breaks on disco records and repeating the parts with just the drums. Like that's how this whole culture of music started. So for me, it's never gonna go away. I'm always gonna sample, but yes, now it's, hip hop's become such a global business, billion dollar industry that people are scared because now a lot of these older artists, they want their money and rightfully so, you know, it's, um, but for me, it's just about being more creative and how I chop and sample and, you know, finding obscure things or, or working with incredible musicians where I can compose original music that sounds like it came off vinyl, you know? And now there's a whole era of, of literally artists and music, musicians composing music to sound like samples so you can buy them and not worry about clearing samples. You pay your $30 and you have 10 compositions you can make in a beat. So it's a whole new world out there uh, if, you know, if you're scared to sample, but I still buy records and sample all the time and I will forever do that. When you're listening to other artists, do you seek out samples of like good lines or do you just bookmark them when you hear a line you like? Well, that's all the DJs I work with. Uh, I don't really, I might once in a while hear something and be like, oh, that'd be dope to scratch. But really, when you're working with DJs that do this, that's, you know, that's where you, you throw that hat to them and, and they put it on. And I know Revolution, from what I remember, has like multiple notebooks of lines that he's always writing down. So when I hit him, he's like got a stash, exactly what you're talking about of lines he's written down and he kind of goes through his archives and like some of his scratch hooks sound like rappers verses they're pretty intense it's it's quite amazing and then you know that's 
that's what separates the great scratch DJs from the other ones is that you have to listen to music because if I call you to do a hook, you got to think of lines. And if someone's constantly listening to music or knows all the classics, they're going to know, oh shit, so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that. And then, you know, they go and dig in the crates and find the perfect lines. So sometimes lyrics and punchlines are so clever or powerful that they deserve a drop. Is there an artist that deserves all of the drops? <laughs> There's many, but some people go too crazy with drops. Like it, it, that's another thing I learned from Ace is that I, I am all about the drops. I love doing drops, but it's all about picking the appropriate lines and, you know, spacing and suspense. And, you know, if you do too many drops, you can't appreciate the ones that happen because they're happening so frequently. Sometimes, you know, two or three at the right moment, you know, has more impact. And I've learned that over the years making songs. Is the physical, tangible relationship between producers and rappers going away? Like where it used to be, you get together and you collaborate in the studio and, or do you just send over beats and then they put their bars on it and then you, they send it back to you like through email? That definitely happens. And I've definitely done that. But my most notable, all my albums I recorded here in my studio where the artists came through. And the only time that's not possible is when they don't physically live in New York but if I'm sending beats to someone who's in another state, there's still communication and collaboration going on. And I'm getting on the phone and I'm being like, you know, what are you, what are you thinking? Here's the beat. Like, you know, do you feel it? What, where are you going to go with it? Where are you going to talk about it? And I always like to have some back and forth. It's never just, here's the beat, do whatever you want. Great. Or I'm going to put it out. Like I'm pretty hands-on uh, with that process. And I've, you know, I've always, always been that way. Cause you can just tell at the end of the day, if something was slapped together or if it was a, you know, uh, a passionate collaboration. Yeah. So you're a pretty disciplined guy. You don't drink or indulge really. Is it hard to avoid the party scene and what comes with it? Once in a while, I smell some weed and I'm like, that smells good. But for the most part, I've been sober since I was 16 years old and I just turned 40. So what's that? 24 years. Um, and I think it's actually a benefit to my work ethic. And, you know, one of the reasons people like Ace like rolling with me because they can count on me at the end of the day to, to be up every morning and ready to go. Uh, I don't miss it. Um, and I still enjoy my life and have lots of fun. So yeah, it, it ain't nothing. You know, I still got these stupid cigarettes. So, you know, in a way I'm still addicted to those. Um, but yeah, no, I don't miss any of that shit. Yeah, you keep it professional. You've said before that you treat making beats like you're nine to five. And one of your favorite parts about it is you can wake up and just walk into the other room and get to work. Yeah, absolutely. And that's no shots to anyone that smokes weed. There's lots of people that, you know, smoke weed and are fully functioning. It just doesn't work for my lifestyle. Yeah. So you go to the gym often. Coming from an Italian household and living in New York, how do you balance Italian food and fitness? Even though I just turned 40, I'm pretty slim. So I think that's one of the reasons why I like going to the gym is because it allows me to recklessly eat tons of Italian food or whatever I want and not get super fat. Um, but I don't really do a lot of Italian food in New York. And I got love for New York and their food. That We got great food here. But I've, I'm blessed. You know, my parents were born in Italy and I've been to Italy a lot of times. I'm actually going to Italy tomorrow. Um, so when I need my real fix, uh, I wait till I go there. And that's, that's the real deal. It's, it's the best food in the world. So if you know me, well, you know I'm obnoxious about talking about how great the food is in Italy. <laughs> so. But what's the best meal there? What do you look forward to most? I trace it back to like my grandmother before she passed away. It's, it's just pasta, man. Pasta is my crack. That's like my soul food. That's, that's the only thing that makes me feel complete after a meal is eating pasta, straight carbs. 
did your grandma get to know that you were going to New York to have this life? Yes, she was alive when I moved to New York. Uh, she unfortunately passed away shortly after, but she did know I moved um, and got to see me. And I still have one grandmother alive, and, and she's a, a huge fan of what I do, and I'm in touch with her. Cool. So you get to travel to amazing places, seeing all types of different scenes and performing music. Is there a place or event that stands out that's a must-see? Lately, I've been doing a lot of trips to Colombia. That seems to be my happy place right now. Medellin, Colombia. I've had the, the, the pleasure of performing there and traveling there a lot. And I've made some amazing friends down there through music. Uh, I just like the vibes down there. I like to go there just to chill out. But there's many places like Italy is another one of my happy places. Uh, I recently was on a trip to Mexico City and that's become a, a new favorite of mine. So I don't know, man, I'm blessed. I'm so blessed to travel. And uh, yeah, there's so many places. I want to get back to Australia and New Zealand. I, I had the pleasure of being there a few times and shouts to Australia for all the craziness that's going on. Yeah. Shout out to Australia, especially all the first responders working out there. Just a couple more questions before we wrap up that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, if you could have a drink or a coffee or a conversation with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? I thought about this and, and at first I was trying to think of like a musical artist, but <clears throat> I had a bit of a rough year and the, the real answer came to me. If I could have a drink with one person and I would break my sobriety for this, but it would be with my dad. I would love to have one more drink with my dad, not to get all somber and sad, but I miss him like crazy. And that would be unanimous. Like number one choice was to have my dad in the studio right now and have a coffee with him. So I love that. Yeah, I read that your dad had an awesome vinyl collection. Yeah, he was a DJ when he was young. And uh, <laughs> it's a salty story because he passed on to me, I would say about 25 records. And based on the records, it was like Bob James, John Handy, um, a lot of jazz. It was like really good stuff. And the rest of his collection he left at an ex-girlfriend's house and he didn't want to go back and get it. So I don't know what happened where it was so serious he couldn't go back and get his vinyl. So I always busted his chops. I'm like, Dad, why didn't you go back? Because I could have had so much heat. But, um, but yeah, shouts to my dad. And he's, he's one of my huge, biggest musical influences. Awesome, man. Like father, like son. So last question, what are your daily non-negotiables? Things that no matter what will always be done. Coffee is probably the, I can't even function without coffee. So that's a real simple thing that happens. Um, and making music, man, if I'm in New York and there's, you know, there's no concerts, it's making music and drinking coffee. Those are non-negotiable. It happens every day. Yeah. I'm gonna have to go to Columbia and check out some of that coffee. I heard it's the best. You know what? That's a whole separate story, but we'll save it for another time, but you should definitely, my recommendations when it comes to Columbia are, uh, Medellin. That's an amazing city and shouts to all my peoples out there. Awesome, man. So the tour starts soon. The Brooklyn story is out along with Afro Polo and Post Authority and many others. So go check those out. Where else should people go to find you and connect with you? You can go check me out on all the social networks, Instagram, Marco Polo Beats, Twitter, Marco Polo Beats, Facebook, Marco Polo Beats, PA, um, you know, Spotify, Apple Music. Uh, all my music is available digitally. So I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Have a great day. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to support this podcast by subscribing on iTunes and leaving me a review, following me on social media at Prime Philosophy, and just by spreading the word. Jacoba.